Amen. Good morning. I'm excited to be with you again. I'm grateful for the invitation and the opportunity. I'm excited to have my wife with me today. Uh, she gets to travel with me occasionally, and so she's with me today. It always sort of keeps me a little more uh, on track and, and focused in. Also, I want to say I appreciate greatly uh, your partnership with the North Carolina Baptist State Convention and your promotion of the uh, missions offering. Man, that's a great work, a great opportunity to really partner and be involved in showing the love of Christ uh, to our not only our state, but to our nation and to our world as we partner together to do that. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to jump right in. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin at verse 25, uh, a passage that you're going to be very familiar with. But if you remember last time, I like to dig a little bit. I like to get out into the text. Uh, I like to really uh, uncover some things. And then at the end, we're going to come back and we're going to learn a couple of two or three things that I think the Lord would have us hear from a very familiar text uh, this morning. But before we gather there, we got to understand that this text, like every text, is always within a larger context. And the larger context is that Jesus had sent out his messengers, his disciples, to announce his coming. And they have returned and they come back and they had proclaimed the message of the kingdom of, of, of God. Uh, and Jesus responded to their coming back in verse 21 with a prayer. So I want us to look at verse 21 to sort of get a context for the rest of what we're going to look at. It says in verse 21, as Jesus is offering this prayer, At the same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Now that's going to be key to moving forward. And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So as our passage opens in verse 25, it's one of those wise and understanding that is coming to Jesus and initiating a conversation with Jesus by asking him a question. So if you look at verse 25 now, knowing who's coming, uh, we can begin to dig down into uh, this lawyer coming and asking Jesus a very legal question. Verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit what? Eternal life. So, got to understand who this is. This guy's an expert in the law. He has a string of seminary degrees uh, beside his name that can go a mile long. He's highly educated. He's earned those degrees. He's proud of his hard work. He's proud of what he's accomplished. And to him, that sort of gives him some of his identity. And he comes to Jesus who he really isn't interested in learning anything from Jesus. And he knows that he doesn't have those similar degrees. He hasn't put in the hard work to be recognized the way this guy has. So he comes there and he begins with a question. Now, I learn by questions. I preach and teach by questions. So there's nothing wrong with questions. But this is what I would call an improper question because this guy has improper motives behind his question. Uh, there again, he's a lawyer. He's a student of the Torah. His profession was in law. It was uh, was not in lawsuits and litigation like we think of nowadays. But his his profession was studying the law of God. That's what he did all day, every day. He didn't find himself in a courtroom, but he was studying the law of God. Sophisticated, prides himself on being an expert, and he he had thought through every single possible response that Jesus could give. So he comes with this question that's loaded, and, and, and he's determined to, 
sort of take Jesus down a notch or two in this conversation. And he hasn't come to learn, but he's come, really, he's come heresy hunting. He's come trying to trap Jesus in saying something that would be incorrect according to his law. So his question then also comes with some preconceived notions. Did you notice what he said? What must I what? Do to inherit eternal life. So he's coming with a preconceived notion that there is something possible for him to do to, that would merit him eternal life or earn him eternal life. So we see he's coming with this question, but, but this question really has some really bad preconceived notions as he moves forward. So let's look how Jesus answered. So he comes with the question, what shall I do? Jesus says in verse 26, he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Then verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will what? You'll live. So notice here, Jesus answers the legal expert's question uh, with a question of his own. He's thinking, okay, you're the expert in the law. You're the, you're the expert in the Old Testament. You tell me what the law says. What do you read it? How do you understand it? So Jesus isn't really teaching him or interested in teaching him something new. He's just really, and this is important, he's just really wanting him to interact and understand what he already knows. He's not giving him new information. He's calling him back. What do you know? How do you read it? What do you understand? The fact that Jesus points us to the law, I think, makes us understand something about Christianity, that it's not anything recent or anything new. It's something that's rooted deep in the Old Testament. We see Christ and we see those messianic foreshadowings all the way back into Genesis. So the whole book of the Bible, we see Christ and God's plan involved there. And, and so Jesus is pointing him to what he already knows. And the lawyer gives a very much an anticipated answer. He quotes two Old Testament passages. The first is Deuteronomy 6, 5. And you remember it was customary for, for Jews to maybe even have this written on a phylactery that they wore on their bodies around their wrists. Uh, th this lawyer could have literally just sort of rolled up his shirt sleeve and read the answer. And, and he goes, you know, first, love God. He's quoting back to Deuteronomy 6. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One, you shall love the Lord your God with your, all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And it's important to notice he says love the Lord your God, not just any God. The God of the Bible, the Yahweh of the Bible. That's important for us to understand because when we say God in our culture, a lot of different images go in people's minds. There's a lot of different understandings about God. But he's not referring to a God. He's talking about the God. The God of the Bible. The God of creation. Yahweh. And then secondly, he's quoting from Leviticus 19 where he says love man. In Leviticus 19, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord God. So love your neighbor as yourself, that Leviticus 19 passage he refers to. So very two very familiar passages. But here's what we got to understand about the culture that Jesus was in. The culture that Jesus was in, in fact, took that quote from Leviticus 19 and had misinterpreted it and, and, and sort of made it into their own thing. And Jesus had to correct them of that in Matthew chapter 5. The Jews in Jesus' day had made that passage basically to say, you shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemies. So Jesus had to correct them of, of, of that sort of distortion of that quote from Leviticus. Now, I, I know we got to plow, so bear with me before we get to the application. we got, we got to dig deep. Notice what Jesus doesn't do here. He doesn't contradict this man's answers. Instead, he says to him, you are what? You are correct. So what he's saying is, if indeed you do love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your might, and you love your neighbor as yourself, he says what? You'll live. Now, from my new Testament perspective, I really expected Jesus to correct this guy here and, and really say, this is way off. But Jesus didn't. Jesus let him rest there. If you love the Lord your God with all of your might, all of your might, all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you'll live. That's interesting. Now, we'll go back there. Look at verse 29. We see something about this motive is revealed. Verse 29 says, But he, meaning who? The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> the man's words here indicate that he realized that he did what? He realized that he fell short of the command that he just quoted. He realized that when it comes to loving God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his strength, every moment of every day, and loving his neighbor as himself, every single moment of every single day, he recognized that he fell short. That's important. The, the, the very fact that he's wishing to justify himself indicates that now in this conversation, he has the realization and the awareness that he's not living up to what he just said. And we need to know and understand that he not only finds himself condemned, but, but, but all of us find ourselves condemned with those very same words. You cannot say, nor can I say, that every moment of every day and every breath I take, that I'm loving the Lord with everything I am, with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my might. I recognize, too, that I fall short of that. I recognize, too, that I don't love my neighbor as myself every single moment of every single day. So that puts us in a precarious situation. We've what? We've fallen short of what God requires. God, Jesus basically saying, if you have the ability and the capacity within you to every moment of every day to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your sight, I mean with all of your might and your sight, and love your neighbor as yourself, then he says you're good. But the issue is we what? We can't do that. We don't have that ability to do that. And so that brings us to a very difficult situation. Galatians chapter 3 tells us this. Cursed is everyone who does not buy, abide by all things written in the book of law. So when we fall short of not loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, every single moment of every single day, we find ourselves what? Cursed. Because we've broken the law. And at this point we recognize the law has done exactly what the law was intended to do. To show us what? Of our need... For a savior. Now our lawyer is at this situation now where he's come face to face with his sinfulness, face to face 
with his failure, and he now has a decision to make. He's, he's found himself condemned. He either at this point has to throw himself on the mercy of Jesus, or the other option is he has to begin to justify himself and lower the bar of God's righteousness. So he decides to do what? He decides to lower the bar of God's righteousness by trying to define who his neighbor is. So basically he's saying, who I got to love? What, what, what's the lowest I can do? What's the least amount I can do and, and, and still fulfill this law? Who is it exactly that I have to love? I want, I want to define that. He's seeking to limit who his neighbor is. You know, because it's easy to love someone that you like. It's easy to love someone that's like you. So we find him at that point of recognizing his failure. And now he's looking for a loophole in God's law and in God's word. You see, this man was not prepared to love some insignificant neighbor. He was too proud for that. He was wanting to paint a picture of the lowest possible point where he could get by and fulfill God's law. He wanted to interpret neighbor as one that he approved. Perhaps another Orthodox Jew. Perhaps one of his own religious friends or one of his own uh, person that's of social uh, equality or economic equality. Who is my neighbor? He really wanted to take what he had learned and, and discuss an abstract answer. You know, we love to do that sometimes, don't we? We want to take something and leave it in the abstract because if we leave it in the abstract, we could just get in a room and discuss it or we could have a meeting about it or we can have planning about it and leave it in the abstract and never really do anything with it. But here's the issue. Jesus never allows us to leave our theology in the abstract. Jesus says, bring your theology into the practical. You see, that's what he's trying to get this guy to understand. He's not trying to teach him new information. He's just trying to cause him to respond and live out what he already knows. And wouldn't it be great? I don't want to speak for you, but it'd be great if I could just live out what I already knew. It would be tremendous. So the lawyer wants to leave this discussion in the abstract, but Jesus insists that he bring his theology into the practical and he does this by telling him a story. And it's a story you're familiar with. Look, look, look over in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? Compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35, And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What an amazing story. One that we're familiar with. One that people that aren't even religious are familiar with. Considered to be one of the greatest stories or pieces of literature in all the world. That This story that Jesus told here. And we got to really understand the setting of this, this parable. It, it, it was a road that ran from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, Jericho lies 600 feet 
below sea level. And Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So you've got 18 miles of this winding road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you've ever been there, you can, you can ride a bus through there. It isn't scared of the daylights out of it. I mean, you ever seen those pictures where they're in, in these countries, they're going on these little bitty roads by the end? Yeah, that's sort of what you get. I, I, I've been there. I've ridden a vehicle through there. And I see how you could easily be jumped by robbers. I mean, they're just right around the corner and there could be somebody there to, to take advantage of you as we see here. It's just a treacherous journey. And, and the man in our story was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The fact that he's going from Jerusalem seems to imply that he was Jewish. Not 100%, but seems to apply. But, but the passage doesn't really tell us Really a man who falls into, our scripture says, desperate times. He's attacked by a robber. They beat him, they rob him, they leave him for dead. And if he doesn't get any medical attention, what's going to happen? He's going to die. Then there are two that walk by in the story. That's important. you got to understand even Micah chapter 6. Because Micah chapter 6 delivers an indictment against the Jews who were ready to come and sacrifice thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil, it talks about, but never really uh, understood justice and kindness and humility. And, and, and God gives them a blistering indictment through Micah about, listen, you're ready to sacrifice all these lambs, but you don't understand kindness, you don't understand humility, you don't understand compassion. And, 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 and so... That's sort of the backdrop. And, and in the course of the story, two different people happen by. The first we're told is a priest. And, and Luke tells us that priest is going down. That means he has probably completed his week of service in, in the festival. He's on his way home. So it's not really, as some have suggested, a matter of whether he's uh, on the way to worship or whatever. He has time. He has the opportunity to stop. The second man, we're told, is a Levi. He's permitted to serve sort of in and around the temple. And we can easily compare this to a church leader, a deacon, or some type of, of church leader. Both of them were men that were involved in what? In ministry. Both of these were respected people of the temple. And in both cases, their response to the suffering of this man was the same. They avoided it. They avoided his suffering. They avoided his pain. They continued on their way. Now, people like to play games about why. What were they thinking? Well, maybe they were thinking this was a setup. Maybe they're thinking, you know, when we go to help, somebody's going to jump out and they're going to rob us. They're going to beat us. I mean, you can, we can play that game all day. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter their thoughts. What really matters is their action. Now, the action is that they, they took no action. And the ironic part of that is that their ministerial function within the temple confines involved helping people that were in need. Part of the priestly duty was to serve as sort of the public health official. A part of the duty of the Levite was the distribution of funds to the poor and those that were needy. So both of these guys had responsibilities in this area, but both of these guys walked past. Now, please bear with me. I know we're, we're plowing through this. Bear with me. But all this is important to understand. Then, then verse 33, we have the one that stopped. 
It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I don't have to give you a lesson on the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. I mean, it was a, it, it, it was a racial thing. There was hatred there. They'd been going back and forth for, for years. The Samaritans uh, had, had gone in and burned the temple. I mean, the Jews had went in and burned the temple of the Samaritans to the ground. The Samaritans had responded by, by sneaking into the Jerusalem temple, defiling the temple. That, that had gone back and forth for decades. And we also know that the Samaritans weren't sort of doctrinally correct. Uh, they didn't recognize parts of the Old Testament and they had rewritten other portions of, of the Bible that they didn't accept as being authoritative. But notice what this guy did have. He did have what? Compassion. I would love to camp out and talk a little bit about compassion uh, because there's some great things about compassion uh, and, and, and mercy. We see the activity of, of compassion. There's activity involved with compassion. It's not just an emotion. It's not just passive. Compassion is always, if we truly have compassion, is, is connected to some type of action. Do we understand that? He acted on his compassion. Because of his compassion, he did something. So there's activity with compassion. We also see there's cost of compassion. I mean, it, it, it cost him his time. It cost him his money. It cost him a, a ride on his, on his animal. It cost him all of those things. And we see that it also there's some motivation of that. What, what prompted this guy to stop? What, was, he, was he doing it in order to do a good deed of work so he could get to heaven? Was he striving to meet some religious standard? No, the text tells us he stopped because he felt compassion. And then the other thing we can notice is this, and then, and then we're going to get into our application. There's an endurance of mercy. He, he, he went further than he had to go, didn't he? He could have just bandaged up his knees, uh, the, the, the needs there and the situation there, and, and we'd have been happy with that. And we said, oh, what a great guy. He did a great thing. But he went further than really he had to. He took the guy to an inn, put him in the inn, give him money, and said, listen, take care of him when I come back by. If there's any other expenses, I'm going to do what? I'll pay you. I'll take care of him. What an amazing story. Now, now, here's our application. Three points of application that we're going to be done. The first is this. If our study of Scripture does not inform our actions, our study is worthless. If our study of Scripture does not inform our action, our study is worthless. We see this in the life of the lawyer. This guy had sat in Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and it had not made a difference in his actions. He walked out of his Bible study and he was the same guy he was before he walked into his Bible study. So we have to be careful that we're not the same. We can keep gathering and we can keep gathering information and we can keep gathering intellectually all of this knowledge about the Bible. But listen, if it doesn't change how we live our lives when we walk out the doors, then it's worthless. 
It doesn't matter how many Bible studies we sit in. It doesn't matter how many degrees we have. It doesn't matter how our perfect attendance is. None of those things matter if we haven't allowed the Word of God to shape our actions. If we haven't been transformed by the living Word of God. What this says should dictate my actions. And and the, and the sad thing about our culture is, is we have the Bible more readily available to us than any point in history of the world, but we're the most in- biblically illiterate, and even many of us that know it do not allow it to transform our lives. You remember what I said in Jesus' conversation? He really wasn't trying to teach this guy anything new. He just wanted him to live out what he already knew. Isn't that true of most of us? It's not really that we need another Bible study. It's not really that we need more information. It's really that we need to let what we already know transform our lives and transform our actions where we make our decisions based upon not what we feel, not what we think, but what God's Word says. We live much like that culture in in Jeremiah where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know what? I'm just foolish enough to believe that God really doesn't care what I think about issues. God really is not concerned even so much how I feel about issues. Because God has already spoken. And what He's asking me to do is allow my life and my actions to be radically transformed by His Word. And to live with that biblical worldview. That means think. Biblically about everything. That means think biblically about finances. Think biblically about our social. Think biblically about our political view. Everything runs through here. And we've tried to categorize everything. This is my biblical life. This is, this is my, uh, my religious life. This is my um, social life. You even hear politicians say, listen, my faith doesn't inform my politics. Well, if you don't have a faith that informs your politics, you don't have a faith. We have to be careful, church, that we don't just gather and get information about the Bible and about God and about Jesus, but we have to allow that information to change us and transform us when we move out these doors into the world. Second thing we got to notice is this. If our worship doesn't motivate our hearts to help the helpless, then our worship is worthless. You know, as we said earlier, Luke is careful to tell us that the priest was, was on the way down. He had completed his week of service in the temple. He's now on his way home. And so it's not a matter of choosing whether to worship in the temple or whether to stop and help this man. He had time. He had means. He even had a motivation out of God's word because he'd been he'd been worshiping God. But the work, the, the, the worship had not transformed his heart. There is another problem we often run into. You know, we can gather and we can sing, whether it's hymns that touch our heart or whether it's contemporary songs and choruses that touch our heart. It doesn't matter. But but we can gather and we can raise our hands and, and we can be emotionally connected to all of that. 
and still walk out the door so often and it not change how we interact with those that we encounter. And what I want to suggest to you, if that's the case in our lives, then we really haven't worshipped. We've sung some songs that we like. We, 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 we enjoyed some good music. But to really worship means to fall down before God and ascribe to Him all the glory that's due Him, not because of, of something I feel, but because of who He is. And, and He's deserving of that. And, and when we do that, we can't walk away and be the same. Everybody we see in Scripture that comes into the presence of God, think of Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God high and lifted up on the throne, and he left there a different person. I want to suggest to you, if we really worship and say we've made worship about everything but God, it's about music, it's about instruments, and so many of our churches are going back and forth with all of that discussion, that doesn't have a hill of beans to do with anything, Worship is about God. And when we see Him, when we see Him high and lifted up, and we bow down before Him and honor Him and ascribe to Him His worth, we walk away different. You can't remain the same if you've been in worship of the Almighty God. And it's so easy now for us to walk into what we call a worship service, sing some songs, listen to a message, go home, and it's like we've never even been there. I want to suggest to you, if you worship God and you fall down for who He is and you ascribe to Him that worth and you get a close understanding of just how holy He is and how awesome He is, when you walk out of that moment, man, you're different. The way you see the world is different because you're broken. Wasn't that the way Isaiah was in chapter 6? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was broken. He saw his sinfulness. He saw the, his father's sinfulness. He saw the sin of his nation. Man, when you see God for who he is, you really see you for who you are. And you recognize how broken you are and how desperate you're in need of him. And if our worship doesn't motivate our hearts to help those that are helpless, then our worship is worthless. One last thing. And this is sort of the key that we're going to wrap up this passage. A proper study of Scripture and a proper worship of Jesus results in a neighborly attitude. Look at verse 36. Which of these three, Jesus is speaking here, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the rabbis, uh, the robbers, I'm sorry. Then verse 37, he said, the one who showed what? Mercy or compassion. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. <laughs> what powerful word. Do you, remember the, do you remember the question? Do you remember the question that started this whole conversation? The question that started the whole conversation is who is my neighbor. The, the, the lawyer came face to face probably for the first time with the law of God. The law of God fulfilled its purpose, showed him how he missed the mark, that word for sin, hamartia. He missed the mark of, of God's call. So he has to do one of two things. We, 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 we At that point, we have to throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus because there's nothing we can do 
to, to perfectly fulfill the law, or we have to try to lower the standard of God's law. He tried to lower the standards of God's law by trying to define who his neighbor was, who does he have to love. That started the whole conversation. And the important thing to see here is that participation in a religion will cause you to look for reasons not to stop. Participation in a religion like he was doing will cause you to look for reasons not to stop when you encounter those that are in need. Who do I got to love? Tell me. Let me define. Let's lower the bar of God's righteousness. But transformation by the gospel of Jesus Christ will not cause you to look for opportunities not to stop. It will cause you to look for opportunities to stop. Do you see the difference? When you have properly studied Scripture, when you have properly worshipped God, there's going to be a transformation that happens inside of you. We're not going to be looking for reasons not to do this. We're going to be looking for opportunities to do this. So, religion is concerned about changing our behavior and a relationship with Jesus transforms our desires. And there's a big difference in the two. And the scary thing is that, is that we so often in our culture have made even Christianity a religion instead of a relationship with Jesus. And religion tries to control our behavior. Be a good boy. Don't go here. Don't go there. Whereas a relationship, our desires and who we are are transformed. So, so here's the question. <laughs> Jesus answered his question, who is your neighbor? He's, he's, he ends up by saying basically, you're the neighbor. You, you be the neighbor to whomever you see. You be the neighbor to whomever you walk past. You be the neighbor to whoever you see that is in need. It's not asking who is your neighbor. Jesus is saying, you're the neighbor. <laughs> Isn't that mind-blowing? This conversation that Jesus... This guy's trying to find out who the neighbor. Jesus says, you're the neighbor. Love. Show compassion to anyone you encounter. Doesn't matter the color. Doesn't matter... The, the socio level doesn't matter. The, the economic level, none of those. Whoever you encounter, you love them with the type of love that I've shown you. So here's the challenge as we leave. Has the Word of God transformed your life? In other words, are you living out the, the fruit of your study of God's Word? Are your actions dictated by God's Word? Are you radically being changed by the study of God's Word? And, and the second question is this, does worship really make a difference in your life? Does it allow you to see God and who He is. And then allow who He is to really see you for who you are. And do you leave after ascribing to Him 
all the honor and glory and power that's due Him. Do you recognize how blessed we are to be recipients of His grace? How fortunate we are in God's holiness and for us to be such sinners that He would allow us to move into a relationship with Him. Isn't that amazing? I, I don't know where you are. I, many of you, I don't know who you are. But we're connected by Christ. We're joined together by an opportunity to worship Him. We're all under the authority of His Word. We're all under the influence of His Spirit. And so my prayer in the next few moments is that we would allow God to just look into our hearts, look into who we are, allow His Word to look into our lives and for us to respond. However, wherever. For some that may be come to this altar and just pray. For some it may be come and have a word with, with a leadership or with myself. For some it may be just where you're standing, just to allow God to speak to you and you respond to Him. However He leads. Let's pray together as our musicians come to lead us. Fathers, we gathered today we're so thankful for your word it encourages us it comforts us and, and lord it, it stretches us and changes us and lord we're told that your word is just not a book of stories that's gathered but we're told that it's alive and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts to the very heart of who we are so father in these moments we place ourselves under your authority uh, we place ourselves under the influence of your spirit and Father, we just ask that you move and work in our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.